Good morning, everyone. It's also always a great privilege to worship God together in this house of worship. Let us go to our Lord in prayer, and then we'll be opening up, opening up our Bibles to the book of James, chapter 1, verse 1. Only one verse, and as I promised, Edwin, I'll get you out quick and ready to go to lunch. How about that? That's my promise. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, as we commit to you, to your word. Lord, there's no one like you. and We find you in scripture. And now we are surrendering ourselves to your word. Guide us. Lead us. Convict us. Lord, bring us back. Lord, we want to praise you through the preaching of your word. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. May the messenger decrease and you forever increase. Lord, we exalt you and honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, today I want to start with a quote. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II, and I want to make sure that uh, I'm not honoring the queen in any shape or form. But I, um, I do want to highlight her service to her people. And uh, she said this, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service to our great imperial family to which we all belong. Again, I want to highlight that. Her service mindset, her servant mindset. She was the longest serving monarch in England. And for the most part, she served her country well. At least, this is the consensus of her people. Some would say she was the right monarch, or the right queen, for many difficult times her country faced. Throughout the history of the church, servants of God arose with the sole purpose to serve God and their people, the church. They were too, men and women made for such times. I would like to encourage you this morning by saying that you, too, were made for times such as these. We encounter a strange time where good is counted as evil, evil is counted as good, family virtues or values are nowhere to be found. This is even gender. It's being forever confused. We live in a strange time, but I want to let you know, take courage, because you have been chosen for times such as these, to be a servant of God for such times as these. God makes no mistakes. He ordains all. You're here in Miami, in Cornerstone, in Kendall, little city of Kendall, for a purpose, and for a purpose of God. But how is the church to be in times like these? Well, in a world full of deception and obscurity, how would a servant of God live life? Well, this leads me to our passage this morning. Let us open our Bibles and to the book of James, like I mentioned, where we're going to meet a man named James who was a servant of God, God for difficult times. And our title of this sermon, of our sermon this morning is, A Servant for Such a Time as This. Can you hear me? No? Brothers? Having problems with the audio? They can't hear me back there? No? Switch to this one. My apologies. 
Let's read James 1, verse 1. It reads, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Today's message has two points. Number one, servant of God seeks to glorify his or her master. And number two, servant of God desires that the church flourishes. Let's get to point number one. For those who might not know, the writer of this book is James. He's the Jesus' younger brother. Some theologians argue whether it was James the Apostle, son of Zebedee, but I don't think so. I like to think it's James, uh, Jesus' own brother. Uh, the timeline tells us it, ha- it was Jesus' younger brother. James the Apostle had already been martyred when this letter came after. And, but I love how James starts the letter. Here's the key. James doesn't grasp to his relationship with our Lord Jesus. He doesn't start the letter alluding to his familial bond. He doesn't say, I, James, the brother of Jesus. He doesn't say that. What does he say? James, a servant of God and of Jesus Christ. The Greek word here uses doulos, which literally means slave. Word for servant, slave. A slave is a person who is legally a property of another and is forced to obey them. This is precisely what James is saying. I am legally owned by my master and my master is God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I am legally obligated to be obedient to him and to all that my master desires. And how do we become a servant of God? Let's start there. How do we become a servant of God? Well, a servant of God must be born again. See, it is not enough to have Jesus on your lips and on our conversations. It is not enough to think of Him when we need something from Him. It's not enough. No, you must be born again. See, James grew up with Jesus. He walked, he played, he talked to God in the flesh. He interacted with a sinless man, a righteous man. And that wasn't enough. James. Whoops. Nope. Yep. All right. I always wonder at the pressure of James. Walking next to Jesus, growing up next to him, to big brother Jesus. Do you imagine that countless times his mother and father told him, why couldn't you be more like your brother Jesus? What pressure. What pressure. The Gospel of Mark says that even when Jesus was making miracles, casting out demons, his brother James did not believe in him. Mark three twenty one, they said his brothers and sisters, and by the way, yes, Jesus had brothers and sisters. He's out of his mind. This is the man who was seeing miracles, casting out demons, and yet not believing. Not even watching those miracles. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians fifteen seven, preaching the gospel, explains that Jesus, in his resurrection, Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles. 
If Jesus doesn't draw you into himself, you don't, you're, don't become a servant of God. Jesus took mercy on his brother. The word slave holds a negative connotation in today's age. But the truth of the matter is that we are all slaves to someone or something. Romans 6 verses 16 to 18 says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads you to death, or to obedience, which leads you to righteousness. But thanks be to God, though you used to be slaves to, slaves to sin, you have become to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You're still slave to someone. Keep that in mind. It is inevitable. You're always going to be a slave to what you give your heart to. You're either a slave to Jesus or to the world. To sin. And if, it's, if that's the, the, the case, then you're a slave to the master of this world. The father of all lies, the devil. Can have it both ways. Servant of God, servant of the world. R.C. Sproul said this. We're all servants. The only question is whom we will serve. When we are set apart to be servants, we must take off our inner master's mentality and put on a servant mentality. See, in this world we have told that each of us are the captain of our souls, the masters of our future. That we only have one life. We must live it to the fullest. That is what we've been told. We must be preoccupied with the riches of this world and become successful. Close deals. Make it happen. We must achieve to be the best you can be and that you are a product of the effort you put in this world. Beloved, the truth of the matter is even that at our best, we're incapable of reaching what God, the Master, has to offer us. Greater men have tried. Believe me, Nicodemus was the best humanity could throw at Jesus. He was the best. He was the master and the teacher of Israel. Only to know in John 3, to find out that in all his successes, in all his knowledge, he was heading the wrong direction. He came in shock when he understood that only in the Master, only in Christ, one becomes a servant, the Most High. I'll tell you again, take off the Master's mentality that you are your own Master and put on the servant's mentality. This is what James is saying. Because at the end, living an ordinary life, is what pleases the Lord and gives Him most, most glory. I would encourage you to seek, to stop seeking an extraordinary life. Let's focus on living a godly life. 
And that is the message of James in this whole letter, is how to live a godly life as a servant of God. It doesn't matter how much wealth you've amassed or deals you've closed. If you're living for those things, all you've done is temporarily put a spotlight on you and not on the eternal living God. Now, if you're a servant of God, you understand that all things, all the things you do in this life matters because all those things bring a spotlight on Jesus. So when you're successful and you've done well, you don't puff up or beat your chest. No, you know these things come from above. Every good gift comes from above. And then men are not seeing you, they see Christ. A servant is humble. And James understands this. He doesn't start his letter, I, James, mortgage broker, I, James, CEO, CFO, engineer, lawyer, or maybe financial guru. He doesn't start that. He, doesn't, he, he says, he, I'm sorry, he holds on to his primary goal, role, which is a servant of God. The problem today with the church is that we have too many masters, few servants. A servant understands that even in the mundane moments of life, they exist to exalt Christ. We either represent Him well or we don't. So don't take your life for granted. Even if it it feels like every day is the same, exalt God in the mundane, in the everyday, in the little moments, because it matters. Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of who? The Lord. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Or 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And I love that Paul mentions eating and drinking because it's just the everyday things. Imagine in the big things. Beloved, you don't have to be a charismatic preacher or a celebrity pastor to glorify, God, glorify God's name. You don't. We praise His name by understanding our role and playing it through the rest of our lives. We are servants of the Most High. That is our role. Because at the end, beloved, our only legacy... And this world will be whether we were a good servant or not. Isn't it? Isn't it every Christian's desire to hear Christ at the end of their lives when we've taken our last breath say, Well done. Good and faithful what? Master. No, servant. Enter into your, the joy of your master. Matthew 25, 23. This is the legacy that every Christian ought to desire. To be faithful in the mundane, in the little. In how we parent our children. In how we have conversations. In how we do our morning huddles at, at work. In how we love one another. That, beloved, is what God is after. A servant's heart. A true worshiper's heart. This is precisely what the book of James is about. 
the heart of a servant. It is precisely how he wants us to read the rest of the book through the lens of a servant. A servant does not sit idle. A servant does not puff up in knowledge and in how much doctrine or theology he or she knows. All of that is nothing if you do not put it to service. That is what the book of James is all about. First to God, giving him all the glory, and second to the church. Which leads me to the second point this morning. Man, I promised I was going to get you out early. I'm ahead of time. That's it. A servant of God desires that the church flourishes. The sole purpose of of your existence is to exalt and glorify God. James is the lead pastor of the church of Jerusalem. And he mirrored this well. James, as with every believer of the history of the church, faced his own challenges within the church. In his case, the church was persecuted. And therefore scattered through the dispersion or the diaspora. This meant that Christian Jews moved away from their nation to live and work in other countries. Mainly in the Mediterranean area, area or the Middle East regions. With this migration, various types of trials arose as alluded in verse 2. James is very concerned for the church, especially when migrating as it would present its challenges, like being away from very strong leaders such as himself, maybe Peter, John, and others. That is what's his concern. This is who he's writing the letter to. He's concerned for the church. He wants the church to thrive, to flourish, to continue on the gospel. He feared that early church would, the early church would encounter Christian counterfeits and heretics teaching pseudo-Christian beliefs, which we have that today also. That was his worry. Therefore, the sole mission of this letter is to teach the church what a church ought to practice based on the profession of faith. So James is worried about that, worried about the church about its growth. James was not, was not only a servant to God, but also to the church, as we see in verse 1b, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, greetings. James sends his greetings to the church. In the original language, the word greeting is heidel. It was more than a greeting. It was a, the word rejoice. This man was rejoicing for the church. And I wonder how many of us rejoice for the church. We take the church for granted. We think it's a Sunday thing. Come on in. Come on out. Checklist. We're rejoicing in the church. In the means of grace. A servant of God is concerned with making disciples. Strong disciples. Mature believers. James was not concerned about quantity, but he was concerned about quality. In verse 2, James tells the church to rejoice in the trials because they produce spiritual maturity with the goal that the believer would be complete, not lacking anything. That was the the main goal of James. 
that the church will grow in maturity, not lacking anything. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In other words, have a biblical perspective on any, any circumstances. In any circumstance, circumstance, ask yourself, how can I, how can I glorify God through this? And how can I, in this circumstance, edify the church, build the church? Again, it's a servant mentality. That is mature thinking. Another way a servant of God seeks to see a flourishing church is by the way he or she disciples the next generation. James was preoccupied that the church wouldn't become stagnant and die. A true believer is concerned with carrying the torch to the next generation. We don't hold on tight to a building or to the way we do liturgy, although these things have their place. Our main concern is to make disciples by preaching the gospel. One of the pillars of the church is preaching of the gospel. We must continuously remind the next generation that the gospel is not a new law. It's not a philosophy or a set of ethics or a code of morals. It's not a philosophy. The gospel is Jesus crucified, resurrected, and ascended. That's how you continue on the next generation. It's not about ministries. It's not about having kids ministry. Those things take place. That gospel. That is the gospel, beloved. And as servants of God, we rely on the truth of the gospel to lead the church into the next generation. I believe... That it is the church's job to teach its members to make disciples and hence lead the next generation. But our youth are not staring away or not leaving the church because the, the church is doing a, a, a horrible job. It's because families are failing. Discipleship starts at home. And we blame leaders and we blame pastors. Again, they have their role to teach Come along, support, but our youth are leaving the faith because family is broken, even within the church. Bodhi Bakum says this, our children are not falling away because the church is doing a poor job. Our children are falling away because we're asking the church to do what God designed the family to do. Even in our homes, we ought to be servants of God. It starts there. We cannot make gener uh, next generation Christians. We don't start home. Leaving, out, leaving it out to our pastor or youth pastors to take care of our children, that's, that's a mistake. But what if? What if older and more mature believers who have been parents, who have so much wisdom to share, come along these parents? What if? As I look around, I see a good mixture of young families and maybe older family. Older folk who have been there, done that, have been parents. What if those pour into those 
younger families. What, what happens? That's being a servant of God. And let me tell you something. If you're of advancing years and you think that, oh, my life is done. I have no purpose. You have purpose. You're a servant of God still to your dying breath. Take every opportunity. Lead others. Give wisdom. Pour wisdom into the next generation. The Lord has you here in this church for a time such as these. A servant of God sees, sees to it that the church benefits from his or her gifts. And I know we've nailed this plenty of times. And we're going to continue to nail this. Because this is what a servant of God does. This is where the robber meets the road. If you're a servant of God, you have been given gifts. For the edification of the church, not for your own, not for you to keep. 1 Corinthians 12, 4, 7, the Bible says that I don't. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone, in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Why hold on to it? doesn't belong to you. I need you. I need it. I need your gift. And I always take it back to the days I used to exercise. You exercise a muscle too long. What happens? Or extend it. You get sick. gets weak. Then the rest of the body suffers. You have to overcompensate. Imagine hurting a, a knee or a leg. What happens to the other leg? You have to overcompensate. Don't let that happen within the church. You know, there's a rule, 20, 80, I don't know, 20, 20, 20%? 80, 20, right? Man, I don't get it. What happens to the 80? Are you not getting it? It is God's grace that you receive at least one gift for my benefit, our benefit, for our common benefit. We are called to be obedient to using your gifts. I always bring it back to those days of exercising, like I said. The same thing happens in the body of Christ. We cannot expect only a few people to carry the weight of the whole body. It is not healthy for the body of Christ. Not healthy. We've all been given the gifts to exercise. I don't know what's stopping you from putting your gifts to service. I don't know. If you're here this morning and the Lord is talking to you, please, please listen. It might, may be that you say my gifts are not important. It doesn't matter, matter whether my gifts are put into practice. I'm inadequate. I'm not worthy. The Lord cannot use me. Well, the Bible says the contrary. You belong to a body. And you are needed in this body. Your gifts are important to this body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 to 22. Paul, talking, to, talking about the body of Christ, he says, Now the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body. 
Does that alter the fact that the foot is a part of the body? Or if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I don't belong to the body, does that mean that the ear really is no part of the body? After all, if the body were all one eye, for example, where would be the sense of hearing? Or if it were all one ear, where would it be the sense of smell? But God has arranged all parts in the body according to His design. For if everything were concentrated in one part, how could there be a body at all? The fact is, there are many parts, but only one body. So that the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. No, again, can the head say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the, the body, which have no obvious functions, are the more essential to the, to the health. And to those parts of the body, which seem to us to be less deserving of notice, we have to allow the highest honor of function. The Bible says that I don't. In other words, if you are a servant of God, you belong to a body of Christ. And therefore your gifts are necessary for the wealth, health of the church. I don't particularly like to use me in sermons. I, I don't. I don't like to bring attention to the speaker. I, only if it ma- makes a point. And I'm going to confess something to you. I feel inadequate when preaching and teaching. When I come up here, as you definitely tell, my primary language is Spanish, not English. I suffer when I come up here. I struggle. So why do you do it there? And why, why, why do you go through the messing up and, and looking maybe not adequate at all? I'll tell you why. Because if I don't obey my master's call to service, what purpose do I have? His calling is higher than my inequities, my, my, my not being adequate. And believe me, if one, of, one day if I'm, I'm told that I can ever preach again, if I'm one day told that you can't preach anymore, for whatever reason, I'll clean the stalls, I don't care. I don't care. Because that is what I'm called to do, to serve God, serve the church, in whatever capacity. Many times believers are cold in their walk. Not always the case, but this is a pattern. Their walk becomes cold with the Lord because they're not exercising their spiritual gifts. Their spiritual muscles, so to speak. When a Christian is not using their gifts for the common good of the church, they lose purpose. And a Christian without purpose is like a man that loses his or her compass in life. Charles Spurgeon said this. He puts it better. I believe that many professing Christians are cold and uncomfortable because they are doing nothing for the Lord. But if they actively serve Him, their blood would begin to circulate spiritually and it will be well with them. Let it be well with you, with me. Not only serving for for the common good of the church, but also for you. Because by doing so, you fulfill your role to be a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Conclusion. For James, his highest honor was to serve God. 
and his fellow believers. James the just, or the righteous, as he was known, died for being a servant of God and the church. Eusebius, 4th century historian, retells James' death. He was tricked by the Sanhedrin to give a word of God to the people. He was invited to go up the rooftop of the temple, where he would supposedly preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He would be thrown off from the city walls, only to miraculously survive. But what awaited him there was a, a mob to stone him, and finally club him to death. I pray that the same desire that James had to serve our Lord will be our own. May we here at Cornerstone Bible Church be servants of God in times such as these. May we be counted, accounted as good and faithful servants. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Word, have been, word has been preached. Lord, you delight in faithful servants. Lord, lead us, guide us, teach us to be servants for your glory, for your honor, for the commonwealth of the church. Lord, we're weak, we're feeble, but you are great. You're awesome in power, Lord, and you delight to see weak men and women do your bidding, do your work. I pray for Cornerstone Bible Church. I pray that we take off master's mentality and put on the servant's mentality. Teach us, O oh Jesus, for you were and are the perfect servant who came and humbled yourself being the king of the universe, became one of us. You displayed humility. You displayed your righteousness, your glory. You were a perfect servant to your Father. Allow us and teach us to be that type of servant. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.